from Movendi International, I am Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues podcast. It is Sunday, October 18th, 2020. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, our weekly conversation about the latest alcohol issues in policy and science and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode, we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. This week, we highlight three alcohol issues that we think deserve special attention. In policy news, we talk about Canada during COVID-19 and how rising alcohol use is fueling mental health problems and what all that says about the country's alcohol policy situation. In this week's Science Digest, we look at new research showing just how much healthcare spending could be prevented through policy action on health risk factors such as alcohol. And in the Big Alcohol Watch, we expose how Big Alcohol uses the illusion of small-scale alcohol production in the Swedish countryside to lobby for the undoing of the successful Swedish alcohol policy model. But first, we begin with an in-depth conversation with another special guest. This week we are joined by Nina Renshaw. Nina is the Policy and Advocacy Director at the NCD Alliance based in Geneva in the heart of global health policy making. In my conversation with Nina, we talk about alcohol's role as risk factor in the global NCD's tsunami and what the NCD Alliance is doing about it. And Nina shares insights into the advocacy environment during and after the coronavirus crisis with regard to attention to non-communicable diseases and their risk factors. We discuss some of the most recent scientific findings about the preventable healthcare costs of NCD's risk factors and shed more light on the concept of commercial determinants of health. With Nina, I enjoyed a far-reaching conversation and some really deep dives into the topics of NCDs, alcohol, industry interference and advocacy for high-impact solutions. And to top it all off, Nina shares her powerful and inspiring thoughts on the most important advocacy issues. Hi, Nina, and uh, thank you for taking time to uh, talk with us today. Of course, the non-communicable diseases are a major issue when it comes to health and development around the world. Alcohol plays an important part, but actually just one part. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's important to actually talk with you about the entire NCD burden and the role that alcohol plays. So I'm really excited to be able to talk with you today. Me too. Thanks for having me. Um, really nice to be here and congratulations on the, on the podcast series. This is, it's, it's cool and it's, it's really a pleasure to be on. But um, yeah, when it comes to alcohol and NCDs, there's, there's a lot to be said. Obviously, alcohol is one of the main risk factors that's recognized as a driver of a whole suite of NCDs. It's, it's you know, affiliated as a, as a contributor to around 200 conditions and, of course, uh, injuries as well as non-communicable diseases. We know that globally alcohol is, is a driver of over 3 million, 3.3 million premature deaths every year. So absolutely enormous, about 5% of global 
premature deaths, the global burden of disease as a whole. And it's, well, I suppose the first thing to say at the moment is because alcohol, you know, weakens your immune system response, um, in the time of COVID, we have to think about, you know, it's not just NCDs that, that alcohol is a factor in, but also some communicable diseases as well, COVID, pneumonia, tuberculosis, sepsis, HIV, which will be front of mind for, you know, a lot of policymakers and, and people at home at the moment. So I think it's important to flag that one. And what we've known for a long time about, you know, the role that alcohol has, it's a it's a cause of seven different cancers, which is still very much underappreciated. You know that alcohol is um, a cause of 8% of breast cancer, according to UK figures, I think is, is not widely known by women. And, you know, there is a drive, a very, very well evidence-based drive to have health warning labels and cancer warning labels on alcohol products, which would make massive strides in, in helping people recognize that risk and, and reconsider some of their some of their choices with regard to that. Um, also, alcohol, you know, has a role in heart disease as well. It's a big risk factor for stroke, for elevated blood pressure, um, for diabetes. Of course, there's an affiliation between alcohol, weight gain, type two diabetes, and then obesity. All of the um, other diseases that that kind of makes people prone to. You know, that that suite, that that list of 200 diseases and conditions is huge. Oral health tooth decay but something that we as NCD Alliance are increasingly looking at at the moment is multimorbidity so how common risk factors and alcohol obviously being a major one can kind of trigger and then cascade into a suite of health conditions in the same person so um, you know there are there are very wide-ranging um, estimates of how many people actually live with multiple chronic health conditions um, but what is clear is that in, in all parts of the world, this is becoming increasingly the norms. So you may be living with elevate, elevated blood pressure, um, type two diabetes, and that has you know, heart disease complications, liver, kidney disease complications, and so on, as well as you know, mental health impacts of living with different, different conditions. And, and you know, so that multimorbidity angle is one that we're keen to um, look into more especially as regards to common risk factors. Obviously, the, the risk factors often cluster together as well. And especially we're seeing this, you know, COVID is really, really highlighting that, you know, it's, it's marginalised populations and, and the worst off in society where the risk factors cluster, where NCDs uh, uh, are being are more prevalent. And these people that because of the prevalence of, of underlying NCDs are higher uh, in the highest risk categories for COVID as well. So, you know, we're seeing that in these COVID figures, it, it's putting the spotlight on things that we've been saying for a really long time, but hopefully, mm. you know, brings this more to the to the fore in terms of the public agenda and the media understanding of why NCDs need to be a higher priority as well. But, you know, also there's, there's an amazing um, figure that's come out of a Lancet public health study this week that in the US, it's, it's a good example, the US spends $730 billion, billion a year on NCDs that are preventable. Uh, and, you know, alcohol is one of the top drivers of that preventable disease burden in the US. And that's costing, I think, in the, in the range of about $40 billion a year just for preventable diseases attributable to alcohol. So that's absolutely stunning. And, and at the moment, when everybody's very, very concerned about the ability of health systems to withstand the COVID emergency and, and any other health crisis that we might you know have to deal with in the coming years 
it's I would hope you know an absolute emergency and a reality check for policymakers to think about how much of the disease burden that we're dealing with at the moment could be you know prevented in advance and, and stopping people needing to call on health systems quite so much as they do uh, and leaving the capacity available to deal with the emergency situations and, and acute conditions obviously. Yeah, thank you for this overview. It's uh, quite astonishing figures um, uh, that you have talked about. I think the 8% breast cancer factor of alcohol or now this latest number of uh, the financial burden of NCDs yeah. and, and alcohol is one risk factor. Um, I think we'll get a little bit more into this. Nina, you are in Geneva, right? Yes. Well, working from home at the moment, most of the time. But yeah, the office, we're based in Geneva and, uh, you know, there for, for advocacy reasons to be close to WHO and, and World Health Assembly's executive board meetings of the yeah. WHO. And so you have now already touched upon some of those issues. Of course, we live in, in the time of uh, coronavirus. And just what you see now in Geneva, how much space do you see for, for this advocacy um, on NCDs that you are so mm. good at? Is this completely crowded out um, in Geneva? Is any, everybody only, um, only in quotation marks, so to say? I think we all understand the urgency, but mm. is the focus single-mindedly now on the coronavirus pandemic? What do you see there uh, in the maybe the capital of global health in Geneva? Um, great question. I mean, obviously the, the political sands have completely shifted. You know, the basis that we've, we've had to, you know, work with for our advocacy over the last few years has completely changed. And it's, gonna, it's, it's not going to shift back, I don't think. I think this is kind of a permanent shift of the, of the you know, advocacy policymaking environment around WHO and around, of course, national governments and, and regional decision making as well. So obviously the spotlight is very much, you know, pandemic response, pandemic preparedness for the moment. But this, what we're saying, but we're certainly not the only ones. This is also in the mainstream media kind of comment worldwide as well. And you're hearing it increasingly, I think, from policymakers is a recognition that, you know, dealing with NCDs, making sure that people with NCD needs can access the treatment they need, the care they need, and that there's an increased focus on prevention. So as we were saying before, not to drive unnecessary demand for health systems i think there's a there's an increasing appreciation of that probably unprecedented appreciation of that amongst policymakers that you know tackling preventing caring treating ncds has to be a part of pandemic preparedness and response obviously we as the global health community as national health systems, um, health workforces, we were not prepared for an epidemic or a pandemic, even less so. Um, and a big part of that is we hadn't got a handle and we hadn't met global commitments, national commitments on NCDs. We have big, big chunks of the population, around 22% of the population worldwide have health conditions, mostly NCDs, which puts them at increased risk of COVID. It's, it's not necessarily the time to say what if, but had we had a handle on NCDs, and you see some countries have, of course, done a better job of this than others. The countries where, you know, NCDs and especially preventable NCDs are not taken care of, um, haven't been addressed in policy, they, it looks like, it looks like we'll have to have a look after the fact once we've seen the full, the full figures and the full impacts of COVID. 
but it looks like they were less prepared. It looks like they were more vulnerable, both in terms of the impact on population health, but also in terms of the impact that this is having on their health systems and their health system sustainability. So yes, it is a matter of, of you know, health systems resilience that we get a handle on NCDs, including those driven by alcohol, of course. And, you know, the evidence base is, is already there. It's been there for a really long time. Policymakers know what they need to do to turn the tide on NCDs, but they haven't done it, um, you know, at the extent needed so far. You know, NCDs should be seen as, and tackling NCDs has to be seen as a, a basis for health security, a basis for resilience health systems resilience, economic resilience, and, and preparedness for future health emergencies from now on. And I think that is the tide that has shifted in global health policy making, which is, you know, it'd be callous to describe it as an opportunity, but it is a window for advocacy around NCDs. It should galvanize, you know, mobilization of, of more attention and of more resources to NCDs. So, yes, it remains to be seen. I mean, when we when we get back to a normal rhythm of World Health Assemblies and, and you know, people are able to meet each other in person again, we'll, we'll see to what extent this environment has shifted and the window has shifted. But it seems like an unprecedented, you know, the gauntlet is thrown down for us NCD advocates, let's put it that way. Yeah. And I think we see something similar. That's what we hear from our members. Um, in different countries mm -hmm. and I think we even heard it in a previous podcast uh, with Dudley from UNDP that mm -hmm. in addition to this uh, I think you frame it very well the health system resilience health security governments are in the need of domestic resource mobilization right Absolutely. all our governments need more money and so I think some of these um, NCD best buy solutions mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, taxation on alcohol, tobacco, sugar sweetened beverages are really coming um, yeah. into focus. And with this building on um, what you have said now, what you have explained, Nina, how is uh, the NCD Alliance, how are you working in Geneva, in, in New York, with uh, increasing the understanding of uh, alcohol's role in mm. NCDs, um, both in your community, but then also in your external advocacy work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you say, that this is this is really the moment for smart solutions. Governments will be maybe prepared to to think about solutions that there wasn't political appetite to consider before, including health taxes. I think health taxes are also having a having a moment in the policy conversation as well. Obviously, there is a desperate need for resources to fund health systems and and a willingness to look at different ways of doing that and if those are win-win in terms of you know um, reducing the risk factors and reducing consumption of health, health harmful commodities then you know I think there's a greater understanding of the kind of investment cases that, that the UN Interagency Task Force, UNDP, WHO puts together. There's certainly huge huge demand more than the task force can meet at the moment for investment cases for ncd measures and as part of, of covid response and recovery packages so that there's there's one thing there that we're certainly advocating for and that's more resources to be able to provide you know from the task force from the un institutions the kind of technical um, assistance that, that countries have a huge appetite for they already did before covid this was something that we saw at the world health assembly over the last couple of years countries are crying out for kind of these UN task force missions to go into country and help them with NCD um, 
policies to cost those up to be sure that they're cost effective in their local and national context and so on so i think there's there's massive potential there if only we can meet the resources and the kind of resources that need to go into it are a fraction of the benefits you know the amplifier effect you know for a very small investment in that technical assistance to help countries roll out these tried and tested policies you have a massive massive um, return on that investment very very quickly big bang for the buck health systems benefits obviously public health benefits and it's 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 huge so um you know in terms of our advocacy we also see and again that that was apparent before covid there's a massive appetite across our network of advocates we have 65 mm. alliances regional and national alliances all around the world and every continent and wow. you know we we put out a call um in advance of the WHO consultation on the global alcohol strategy. And we had a really strong response from across the network. There's a lot of advocates, there's a lot of civil society organizations that want to be more active on alcohol control, on alcohol policies as a way of preventing NCDs. So we see the appetite is there, but again, there's a, there's a, like a barrier to that is the resources for it. So I guess one thing that we need to be calling for is for, you know, um, support mechanisms whether that's overseas development assistance whether that's un programs whether that's philanthropies and charitable organizations to come in and support civil society to work on this but there's yeah there's huge appetite there's huge expertise in civil society on um alcohol policies and that's that's untapped at the moment there's a lot more that i think we can do in this space there's a lot of energy there's a lot of demand as you well know from your network as well, um, but especially coming from kind of that health background, NCD background, also mental health background. Mm. Um, there's a huge amount that still needs to be said. There's, there's a need for campaigning at the local level, at the national level, at the regional level. And um, yeah, we're, I think part of our role is to try and galvanize that, to bring that together and to show policymakers that that civil society demand is there obviously the counterweight to that and something that we need to um head off more and more so the biggest challenge we have is the interference from the alcohol industry themselves who have you know used tobacco tactics across the board we've seen this for many years we've we've written research reports on this together to show that there's the tactics are very similar they distort the science we see them um basically capturing policymakers to kind of parrot their wording parrot their narrative you know, when we were talking last year about a, um, a decision, a, a resolution at the World Health Assembly, at the executive board rather, we saw a couple of member states trying to remove the recognition that alcohol is a carcinogen. The US in particular was trying to say that the evidence base isn't strong enough to link alcohol and cancer, which is absolute nonsense. And, you know, it's so such a strong echo from what the tobacco um, lobby did years and years ago um, but it shows you that we're, li we're dealing with kind of similar levels of influence similar levels of I guess uh, capture of policymakers and, and this really really unhealthy influence over policymakers which you know we, we've done some work recently which shows that during COVID this is maybe getting worse this is a risky time for policymakers and for policy interference, you know, they're using this emergency situation now, um, particularly the alcohol lobby, to try and get themselves more space in policy, to try and own the narrative, to try and obviously reach consumers, but definitely to reach um, policymakers with their messages and to call for things like, you know, 
tax relief, um, reduction of VAT on alcoholic products, undoing restrictions on online sales, for example. And all of this is a really very, very risky time. Um, you know, there's been some progress in alcohol policies over recent years in recognition, including of the, of the health impacts. But there is a risk that they're using cynically, you know, using this um, health emergency as a way of trying to undo that when we should really be going in the opposite direction. And uh, Nina, in the beginning, you mentioned, um, I think this was a great overview, um, alcohol's role in the NCD tsunami that we are seeing. So you talk about cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, even oral health. And then I thought it's very interesting to actually explore this multimorbidity conversation yeah. a little bit more. And, and on this, I wanted to ask you, because uh, we are obviously aware that some of the harm that alcohol causes, like violence and uh, mm. road traffic injuries, they are not really included in this bracket of um, yeah. NCDs. So from what you know, um, is uh, what is alcohol's role as a risk factor in, in NCDs? And is it becoming more important as more evidence emerges? Or how do you see this or what do you know? I, yes, I would say so. I would say it's becoming increasingly important. I mean, obviously the evidence around alcohol and cancer has been available for, for a long time and, and the evidence yes. base around all of these conditions is only getting stronger. It, obviously there is still myths to be busted around mm. alcohol and cardiovascular disease. You know, this is something that the industry has in terms of distorting the science they've played on this for a really long time and um, I think left a lasting impression with mm. with people with consumers in a lot of countries that there's some kind of, you know, advantage at some point. And, you know, that has been really, really problematic. And th this is something that, you know, needs to be also called out in, in national um, guidelines and so on. I know that these have been hugely, hugely controversial and it's a big battleground in themselves, the, the kind of safe drinking guidelines, but it's got to be, you know, abundantly clear by now that there is no safe level. Every, every quantity of alcohol you drink has a, you know, a, a risk impact on, on cancers, uh, on stroke and on, you know, and so on. So they, there isn't a health benefit to any level of, of, of uh, alcohol consumption. That's got to be clear. And, and we, I think as a health community have to um, be very clear and, and push back on any kind of hint of health benefits. This, this is something where, you know, the alcohol industry will try to divide and conquer mm. and we, we mustn't let that happen i mean we, we can be very well coordinated within the public health community and also with the with the sustainable development community you know mm. as as your work that mabendi has pointed out um very very well you know alcohol is a factor is a risk that cuts across almost all of the sustainable development goals whether that's poverty whether that's gender equity whether that's you know violence whether that's political stability you know whether water environmental impacts it's mm it's um it cuts across the whole the whole swathe and there's a specific sustainable development goal under the health development goal on on reducing alcohol consumption harmful alcohol consumption and impact but you know obviously that's intimately connected with the sustainable development goal on on non-communicable diseases on the one on mental health suicide alcohol is obviously a, a a big driving factor in a lot of suicides. There's been a new study in Australia which just confirmed that um, very recently. So, you know, the evidence base is amply there. 
in a similar way to, to other risk factors. I mean, we're also keen to draw parallels from other risk factors as well. You see, um, obviously, a lot of inspiration is taken from the tobacco control movement and the successes that they've had. But, you know, we see the policy space for nutrition, for example, moving very quickly at the moment. There's some great examples of big strides forward in nutrition policy, um, especially from Latin America, the warning labels that now, as of, um, I think, last week, have to go on to ultra-processed um, food and drinks in Mexico. Brilliant example, super clear, very well um, understood by consumers. Flagging, for example, trans fats, which is uh, you know, a toxic substance and, and really harmful for, for heart disease, flagging the presence of trans fats. And yet we haven't been able to make the same strides when it comes to alcohol, but there's definitely, definitely lessons that we can take across different parts of the NCD movement and, and what's worked in other parts. So I think you mentioned um, obesity before. I think there's huge synergies between the tobacco and the, and the nutrition, all forms of malnutrition, including obesity. There's huge synergies between those two movements where you know, also, as I said before, these are the also where um, diseases would tend to cluster together around mm. malnutrition, around overweight and obesity, around uh, use of alcohol and so on, that you see that um, manifest then in cardiovascular disease in cancers, mental health conditions. You know, that list is, is very, very long, as we discussed before. But there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of parallels that can be can be drawn also in terms of how we push back and how governments can be helped to push back against the interference of those industries because mm. as we said they they're all using very much the same the same tactics and they've all fascinatingly kind of morphed their tactics in the same way to respond to covid which is is what a recent study that we've done shows yeah. we've we've collected uh, around 900 examples we crowdsourced examples of how health health um, harming commodity industries have kind of responded to COVID. And we were able to put that into a kind of typology. We saw um, the vast majority of examples that came back. I think alcohol was the uh, winner, <laughs> let's say in an ironic way. Um, getting on for 400 of those examples came um, in response to things that the alcohol industry have been doing. Um, over 300 came from junk food, ultra processed food and drinks as well. So these were kind of the two main areas that people responding to this call for, call for evidence picked up on. And the, we were able to put them into this typology. This is, this is a project that we did with um, the Spectrum Consortium, which is an academic research consortium, and NCDA. And they helped us you know, with the methodology that classifies those into those kind of behaviors into four main groups. So adaptation super rapid adaptation of marketing and promotion yeah. which is interesting you know we saw suddenly special packaging come out um, completely different promotional messages advertising messages um, and this is you know from the same industries that tell the tell us and tell politicians that it's going to be too expensive to change their packaging to put labels on that it's you know that they need years of lead time to put health warning labels on their products that it's just going to be very complicated to change the design yeah. and yet in a matter of you know weeks or, or or days they change the packaging to kind of respond to to covid and to tailor their marketing messages and their you know aesthetics and everything we saw um a brewer in brazil try to mm. claim that beer was as necessary to life as air in your lungs and to you know 
no limits of taste and decency <laughs> in that respect. We saw the second category is kind of corporate social responsibility and, and sort of philanthropic actions on the side of the of the health harming industries. So especially alcohol, we saw a lot of companies switch to producing sanitizer as a way of then kind of virtue signaling and saying we're doing something to help. But we saw in many cases this was branded um, this was maybe scented and this is also a way of kind of doing viral marketing and, and reaching to consumers, but also definitely policymakers in that way. We saw a, a renewed push for partnerships and collaborations appearing to be kind of charitable and doing something good for the community, kind of saying we're supporting the catering sector, we're supporting the nightlife economy and so on. We saw lots of these pushes from all all different parts of the world also offering in partnership uh giving hand sanitizers to health services and this kind of thing this is all kind of csr this is enhancing brand reputation um and you can see that because it, it doesn't stand alone as a altruistic action it's also something that is pushed and communicated very hard via their marketing and promotional actions social media channels everything as well so this has been you know they've used it as an opportunity to increase the space increase the resonance increase the presence that they have um and especially when it comes to social media with youth markets with with women you know in new markets by geography as well we're seeing this pushed onto the new kind of target audiences in the growth segments that that the alcohol industry wants to wants to attack essentially and then the, the fourth area where we saw the industry kind of try, really trying to get their teeth into was shaping the policy environment. And the alcohol industry yeah. was very, very quick to respond on this. So asking for relaxation of sales restrictions, opening hours, online sales and so on, trying to define alcohol as essential products through lockdown so that they could still um, reach all of their markets, calling for reductions on value added tax, calling for reductions on other um, taxes calling for delays on regulations that were about to come into force you know we saw numerous numerous examples even i thought one of the more egregious ones was in france the industry um called to be allowed to sponsor sports events again which is there's a long-standing law the loi Evan, mm. which uh, came into force in the 1990s it's already been in place for you know a few a good few decades and as yeah. the evidence bases that this has worked very very well um and they were saying you know in order to get the economy moving again somehow we should be allowed to sponsor sports events again so yeah it has been absolutely deployed as an opportunity for the industry to re i guess re-establish reintegrate themselves with policymakers to ingratiate themselves with policymakers and try and create a sense of I guess gratitude and then you, you're going to owe us and we expect to see that reflected in um, in the policy environment that we have to contend with and it was I you know I'm really glad that we were able to do this study with the Spectrum Consortium because it's so important to show how this has happened so quickly and as you said before how our advocacy environment has just shifted so so quickly and just to try and keep up with these with these trends and be able to show to policymakers, you know, this is happening and it's tactics that we've seen before from the tobacco industry. It's also the tactics that we're now seeing from junk food, from fossil fuels, from baby milk substitutes, and, you know, the importance of working across these risk factors and recognizing that that, that industry interference is happening, uh, maybe on an unprecedented level right now. Yeah. And uh, I have to agree. I think this is an excellent report. I think uh, we have massive respect, uh, to be honest, for uh, also the speed uh, that you were able to process this 
900 crowdsourced examples and this kind of typology that you now have briefly introduced is all very impressive. And of course, from our perspective then, as you said, Nina, that there are almost 400 examples uh, from alcohol industry uh, tactics and, and strategies. And, and so I just wanted to ask, um, can you see that this has maybe been um, misunderstood before, that there is actually so much interest in alcohol prevention and control in the communities, in the NCD community, or is this emerging now as you have done work now, you know, we work together on these issues for many years now, that people feel more empowered, or what, what would you say um, is the driving force of, uh, you, you also explained earlier that um, you get these requests and these responses from your networks to tackle alcohol harm. Yeah, increasingly. And um, I think this has also been an important exercise for us because it's crowdsourced to see where the demand is as well and to see, you know, those examples, those hundreds of examples are spread around the world. It isn't just a problem which is geographically limited to some regions, let's say. We're, we're seeing examples of every sector in almost every continent, which is important for us, you know, to, to when we think about our own strategies going forward and how we work with the network, it's important for us to kind of gauge the interest in different policy issues. I guess what's important with this one is you know, civil society organizations, individuals didn't need any resources in particular to take part in this, which is, as I was saying before, it's, it's you know, the resourcing for civil society is a huge barrier that the willingness from civil society, uh, from experts, from academia to get more involved in alcohol policy discussions is absolutely there, but it is untapped at the moment because of the lack of resources to deal with it which obviously is is something that you know our two networks unfortunately know very very well um that it's it isn't the disease burden and the outsized power and influence of the industry is not met with a proportionate response in terms of support for civil society to work on alcohol or in indeed support um for who from member states to work on alcohol this is still very very disproportionate if you think of those you know you know 3.3 million premature deaths every year avoidable deaths all the avoidable costs for health systems there needs to be a kind of a proportionate response in terms of policy development in terms of implementation support um those investment cases and so on but also civil society support to help you know show that there's there's a really strong public interest in in implementation of the tried and tested policy actions the 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 safer package developed by who so you know the recipe for success the recipe to kind of curb alcohol harm is absolutely there and i think you know as we were saying before the components for more successful campaigning and more successful advocacy around alcohol is absolutely there but the resources on every level remain um yeah disproportionately very very disproportionately um too low so um yeah i i guess there's there's uh we have to make the most of the resources that we have obviously this isn't to say that we we you know, it's not in any way defeatist, but it's to say that, you know, there, yeah. there is the energy there to, to do much better. I think that has changed in the last couple of years that we, you know, we're seeing more coordinated efforts across the NCD community, for example, to take this up and across the development community and with, you know, other UN institutions. We see interest from UNICEF, we see interest from the UN Development Programme, and this is all mm. extremely, extremely important. Um, and suggest that we have a massive a kind of coalition of the willing to try and try and move things forward. And we also have a window of, of 
political opportunity at the global level with the, the WHO being mandated to, to bring a proposal for a global action plan um, in 2022. So this is going to be a really, a really key moment, something that we're, I'm sure, all gearing up for. And yeah, I think the sort of evidence that we're gathering around COVID is, is instructive right now um, about how we need to strategize in response to that. And that understanding, especially of the industry interference, and, and I think one of the, the first building blocks that we need for this, this campaign and, and the call for a, a, an alcohol action plan to be successful is better guidelines for member states around how to deal with industry interference. There are some at the moment, there are guidelines from WHO headquarters to the country offices about you know, limitations on engagement yeah. with, the, with the alcohol industry, but that could all be, be much, much clearer. We know that there's, again, huge demand from national governments um, to WHO, like uh, give us guidance on how to recognise when an industry is interfering, give us guidance on how to push back um, and, and kind of set the, set the parameters for engagement and, and, or, or disengagement, hopefully, with the industry. Yeah, yeah I think this, these guidelines that you mentioned, uh, they are internal WHO guidelines that leaked. And that, I think that was very interesting also around the time when WHO relaunched their uh, dialogue meetings with mm -hmm. the alcohol industry. Um, I think we will... Uh, probably be able to add this uh, since it's leaked to the show notes. Nina, okay. it's very interesting to, to talk with you. And I think just to go into the report that you mentioned you did together with uh, Spectrum, we would probably need to do a separate podcast conversation. I think it's very interesting. So um, my final question for today is, you mentioned a number of interesting topics like the multimorbidity and alcohol um, some coordination and synergies between alcohol and, and obesity and, and other uh, major NCDs, but also um, in advocacy, these uh, emerging uh, processes that are going on. So can you just talk about what is on the advocacy agenda or on the agenda of the NCD Alliance when it comes to alcohol, what it is that you think needs to be done um, even in, in collaboration with us, but, but what is on your radar as priorities? Sure. Um, I mean, for us as NCD Alliance, you know, we work across NCDs in general, a broad range of, of conditions, physical and yeah. mental health. Um, and we have what's, you know, we're infinitely grateful for the expertise of our members in the different disease areas um, and across the different risk factors, which is great. So, you know, we're in a I think quite a, a privileged position to be able to draw parallels across risk factors across diseases. And as you, as you said, to start looking at multimorbidity as well. So, you know, where there's clustering of risk factors, clustering of, of NCDs and, and other, other chronic conditions within the same people that isn't very well recognized in policy at the moment, actually. And you know, it makes a stronger case for, for more NCD policy implementation, I think. So, the things that we're looking at across across the risk factors, alcohol very, very much included in that, um, and across different NCDs is is tackling industry interference and conflict of interest, where you know that's that's so present across a lot of the, the policy issues that we're 
we're working on and campaigning for identifying incompatible partnerships. So we have our own conflict of interest policy, which which uh, kind of paints a spectrum of you know totally incompatible partnerships at one end of the scale. Tobacco, very very obviously, compatible partnerships with you know private sector actors that are interested in, in promoting better health, um, mm. fruit and vegetables, you know, sports, you know, the positive end of the scale. And then that's a, you know, there's a, there's a whole spectrum in between of yes. where we have to be very, very cautious about how we consider entering into any kind of partnerships and the kind of due diligence that we need to do for those partnerships. Um, we would like that dialogue to continue across, um, civil society, but also to permeate more into the UN institutions and into governments to recognize that, you know, some partnerships should be entirely off limits, alcohol included, mm. junk food included, um, on the same level as tobacco. And then there are others that need to be very, very carefully scrutinized. Um, and we see the industries again, this is another kind of industry tactic around corporate social responsibility, kind of playing the SDGs off against each other. So, you know, the alcohol industry doesn't want to talk about the health impacts, but they do want to talk about water conservation or gender empowerment or other things. So, you know, among civil society, we, we I think, uh, maybe just need to compare notes now and again to see which of these partnerships yeah. are, are more or less compatible and, um, and not fall into, fall into traps of working with organisations that are then going to use that as leverage to fend off regulation in the areas that they do have, you know, direct influence over like alcohol and, and health. We're going to be uh, increasingly, I think, looking at, at cross-border impacts and, and where trade comes up against health and where there's, there's lack of policy coherence. Mm. Um, this is something that we, you know, the alcohol sector as, especially, um, and junk food as well, you see, you know, it's a minority of governments when it comes to um, UN policymaking that, you know, trade trumps health. And the vast majority of governments that are looking for trade deals, for example, with some of the more developed economies, with the alcohol exporting economies, are on the back foot to that. And how can they be supported in defending their health from these health harmful commodities that trade deals are going to try and increasingly have already done um, parachute into their economies with a massive um, social cost price tag attached to that. So we're looking at, you know, human rights frameworks, human rights law, child protection laws and conventions. We're looking at where there are areas of binding law um, mm. that can be helpful to, to governments to push back against, you know, to, to stem the tide a little bit of health harmful commodities as far as possible, which is, you know, that's an ongoing an ongoing struggle where there's a lot of academic expertise, there's a lot of expertise in civil society. Um, across different commodities, obviously, especially alcohol, where we can compare notes and, and learn a lot about things going forward. Also, yes, as we were saying, kind of the, the, the resources. Um, financing for the NCD response is a, is a huge priority for us at the moment. It will be a huge priority into the future as well, because NCDs are so under-resourced um, compared to other areas of global health. You know, they get something like a 300th of what... HIV and AIDS get compared to the burden wow. of disease or, or maternal and child health conditions get about 60 times more compared to, you know, the number of people living with those diseases, for example. So NCDs are vastly, vastly, vastly under-resourced, not to say that other health issues should um, get less resources, but just that we need to balance yeah. by um, topping up the amount 
that's available for, for NCD prevention and treatment, certainly treatment as well. So it will be important to make the link then between, as we were saying at the top of the, at the, top of the podcast about, you know, preventable costs, um, the health system's impact of, of a lot of preventable NCDs, those costs that could be saved by taking prevention measures. And that harks back, there was a great report some years ago by the OECD um, that looked at the overall social costs of alcohol um, and that the, the harms of alcohol to economies and how that could be better managed um, by intervening earlier prevention, brief interventions in the health systems and so on. So it would be, it would be great to come back to that and, and kind of pivot back to prevention. I think off, off the back of the experience and the learnings of COVID, this is something that is only going to gain traction in the coming years. And then I think finally, as, as a priority, um, also, you know, has been thrown into sharp relief by COVID, but social determinants of health, health inequalities as a result of, of where and how the risk factors disproportionately hit communities and economies. So working on social determinants, closing that health gap between communities, between, you know, different socioeconomic groups is going to be absolutely essential. Um, and again, that cuts across all the risk factors that we're talking about and all of the diseases that we're talking about as well. Thank you, Nina. This is a very impressive, uh, fantastic uh, list of uh, priorities and, and of work. And I know that you have already uh, started, I think, leading on a number of those issues. So with this, I actually wish you good luck. And this is really awesome. And uh, I want to thank you for this conversation today. Thank you. I actually also took notes um, just to be able to process uh, the things you talk about and it's quite remarkable really also the way you have framed the different issues I think as we said in the beginning there are so many quite shocking figures and numbers on financing on disease burden on the economic impact so I think your work is certainly really important and um, probably it's an understatement to say that the work is really important but for today, just thank you for taking time to explaining this uh, to us and laying out the case for uh, making action on alcohol, uh, on NCD prevention and control, the priority it should be. And then, of course, including alcohol policy. So thank you so much, Nina. Thanks, Mike. Really good to talk to you. Here are the alcohol issues you need to know about this week. In policy news, we talk about Canada during COVID-19 and how rising alcohol use is fueling mental health problems and what all that says about the country's alcohol policy situation. Canada and COVID-19, as alcohol use rises, mental health worsens. New research has found that many Canadians are reporting worsening mental health along with increased alcohol consumption during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The developments expose Canada's flawed alcohol policy model. The country could clearly benefit from scientifically proven alcohol policy solutions especially given the rising alcohol and mental health problems. A new research survey conducted by Nanos Research showed that 20% reported increasing alcohol use, 16% reported their mental health worsened and 24% reported that their mental health somewhat got worse. 
the findings show an increase in mental health problems. These results are concerning because alcohol consumption continues to rise in Canada during the pandemic. Deregulation and weakening of alcohol laws in several provinces are adding fuel to the fire. In Canada, alcohol is regulated provincially and not nationally. During the pandemic, many provinces weakened their alcohol policies, including by granting alcohol essential status and increasing the availability and affordability of alcohol. In this week's Science Digest, we look at new research showing just how much healthcare spending could be prevented through policy action on health risk factors such as alcohol. A new research article published in The Lancet Public Health illustrates healthcare spending due to modifiable risk factors. The study is called Healthcare Spending Attributable to Modifiable Risk Factors in the USA, an Economic Attribution Analysis. Importantly, modifiable means that something can be done about the costs from these risk factors, including alcohol. The objective of this study was to quantify healthcare spending attributable to modifiable risk factors, including alcohol, in the United States for 2016. In 2016, US healthcare spending attributable to modifiable risk factors was 730 billion US dollars, corresponding to 27% of total healthcare spending. Attributable spending was largely due to five risk factors high body mass index, high systolic blood pressure, high fasting plasma glucose, dietary risks and tobacco smoke. In total, alcohol use causes, according to the analysis, $36.5 billion every year in healthcare spending, a sum that could largely be avoided through alcohol policy solutions. The study shows that alcohol use is among the three behavioral risk factors that receive little total healthcare spending but cause large fractions of the attributable health burden. The study also shows that alcohol contributes costs across the biggest number of health conditions and that alcohol use has a massive effect on the younger population, causing major costs in the age groups 20 to 44 and 45 to 64 years of age, which are the age groups when people are economically most productive but alcohol harm is jeopardizing this economic and productive activity. And in the Big Alcohol Watch this week, we expose how the alcohol industry uses the illusion of small-scale alcohol production in the Swedish countryside to lobby for the undoing of the successful Swedish alcohol policy model. IOGTNTO exposes Big Alcohol's Trojan horse. Farm sales benefit multinational alcohol industry giants, not small-scale local producers. 
A new report from IODTNTO warns that it is multinational liquor giants that are pushing to allow farm sales of alcohol in Sweden. The lobbying proposal is exposed as a scam that is about promoting the profit interests of the world's largest alcohol corporations instead of small local winemakers. In other words, Gorge Verschelning is the alcohol industry's Trojan horse to deregulate alcohol sales in Sweden and overthrow Systembolaget in pursuit of corporate profit maximization. The new report exposes three main myths about Gorge Verschelning propagated by big alcohol to manipulate the public and garner political support. In Sweden, alcohol is being sold through a government-run retail monopoly called Systembolaget that eliminates profit maximization motives from alcohol retail and serves to protect public health and safety while providing world-class service and a broad range of alcoholic and non-alcoholic products to customers. But the alcohol industry has attempted for years now to undermine and do away with this alcohol policy model through the so-called Gorge Verschelning proposal, farm sales, as it's translated. The talking points are about small-scale alcohol makers in the Swedish countryside on small farms and to allow them to sell their products directly to visitors. But the new IOGT NTO report exposes these talking points as scams. In fact, the report sheds light on three scams the alcohol industry, especially Pernod Ricard, one of the world's biggest multinational alcohol giants, is using. The manufacturing scam. Farm sales of alcohol use is about giving manufacturers of alcoholic beverages the opportunity to sell alcohol directly to customers. What is hidden from view is that to be considered a manufacturer or producer of alcoholic beverages, a person does not have to grow the raw materials or produce the alcohol themselves. For example, it is enough to add raspberry flavor to 97% factory bought raw alcohol, dilute with water and pour it into a bottle. The rural bluff. Farm sales are presented as if they could rescue rural and small business. But there is no clear limit to what constitutes a farm sale spelled out in the big alcohol proposal regarding alcohol production or sales on farms or rural areas. Currently, cities dominate alcohol production in Sweden with the majority of breweries and distilleries being close to major cities. Private sales of alcohol are also concentrated in major cities as demand is higher in urban areas. The truth is, it would become garage sales of alcohol, not farm sales. And the innocent scam. Farm sales is presented as a way to help rural small business when it is anything but. The farm sales proposal would allow for profit interest to enter the alcohol retail sector in Sweden. Currently, the system of the Swedish government-run alcohol retail monopoly, Systembolaget, has eliminated profit maximization from alcohol retail. Farm sales, however, would topple the retail monopoly and deregulate alcohol sales. And the proposal and lobbying is orchestrated by big alcohol companies, not rural wine producers, as big alcohol would want us to believe. Gorge Verschelning basically is a scam. 
it would turn into garage sales of alcohol in urban areas. These are this week's alcohol issues highlights. Thank you for tuning in. If you have stories you would like us to cover or if you have suggestions for topics to explore, please drop us a message. To read more about this week's alcohol issues and to provide you with more details and sources, we have referenced all stories in the show notes so that you can easily find all alcohol policy highlights, the latest science digest and brand new revelations about the alcohol industry. Of course, we also link to more information about the work of the NCD Alliance and some of the key topics that Nina talked about. And if you have feedback, questions and suggestions, please do get in touch. We share our contact details in the show notes with you. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchi Goda, Christina Sperkova, and Mike Dunbier. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay well and safe and see you next week.